reading today comes from Luke 9, 28 through 36. About eight days after Jesus said these things, he took Peter, John, and James and went up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes flashed white like lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, were talking with him. They were clothed with heavenly splendor and spoke about Jesus' departure, which he would achieve in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were almost overcome by sleep, but they managed to stay awake and saw his glory as well as the two men with him. As the two men were about to leave Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good that we're here. We should construct three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But he didn't know what he was saying. Peter was still speaking when a cloud overshadowed them. As they entered the cloud, they were overcome with awe. Then a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Even as the voice spoke, Jesus was found alone. They were speechless, and at that time, no one told them what they had seen. The next day, when Jesus, Peter, and John had come down from the mountain, a large crowd met with Jesus. And a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to take a look at my son, my only child. Look, a spirit seizes him, and without any warning, he screams. It shakes him and causes him to foam at the mouth. It tortures him and rarely leaves him alone. I begged your disciples to throw it out, but they couldn't. Jesus answered, You faithless and crooked generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him down and shook him violently, and Jesus spoke harshly to the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. Everyone was overwhelmed by God's greatness. This is God's word for God's people. Gave you a little extra uh, scripture reading at the end there, free of charge. Yeah. Who do you say I am? Is a question posed. This is the first question that Jesus asked some of his closest buddies. They're kind of en route through cities and villages, proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. It seems that this good news proclamation and the healing and the providing food has really caused quite a bit of commotion and controversy, or at least some uncertainty for the, to be able to answer this question, who the crowds think that Jesus is. Some say Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Still others, an ancient prophet, come back to life. None of these answers is, like, completely wrong. But Jesus is doing powerful things like Elijah. He's declaring repentance for the forgiveness of sins like John. He's deeply and kind of from the inside out, like, internally rebuilding the burnt bridges between God's people and God, like any prophet worth their salt might do. But all these designations, these hopes, they're too 
small. They're, they're not enough. They're just pencil sketches waiting to be filled in with more contrast and color and depth and interest. So Jesus then turns that question on his disciples. I think it's a question that you and I wouldn't do too badly to occasionally have pressed to us and make us forced to craft our own answer. Who do you say I am? Jesus asked. Then Peter, Peter's always the spokesman. He's like the self-appointed spokesperson of the group, the ever-zealous apprentice of Jesus. He pipes in and he says, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the one sent from God. And Peter's right. He's too right. (laughs) He kind of Like Peter, I think here, kind of invents the Sunday school answer. You know, like when kids, no matter what the question is, they say the answer is Jesus because they're hoping to get like a mint or something, right? Like that you say Jesus, but you don't have a way to show your math or you don't really know what that is going to mean for your life. And when I say kids, I mean all of us grownups too, right? Um, I think... Because of this phenomenon, uh, the Peter phenomenon, and, and, so, and we'll see more of that in our scripture reading for today, that I think following this Jesus, who asks, who do you say I am, does something really interesting. It, it, it makes us uh, do something interesting that we'll take up in these coming Lenten uh, weeks together. Jesus, after this bold proclamation of his identity from Peter, then urges them to not tell anyone. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus say, you got it exactly right, but I don't want you to tell anyone? I think it's because they haven't really earned the ability to say these words, this, this identity for Jesus. That, that they've heard it. Some of them have said it. Some of them have seen it, but they've yet to walk it and bear it on their bodies that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ sent from God. If they're not careful, they'll take this word Christ to be an honorific, or like most people nowadays think Christ is Jesus' last name, which is not true. Um, And they'll disconnect it from the cross that the Messiah had to bear. If they're not careful, if we're not careful, we'll disconnect it from the crosses that we need to take up and follow Jesus on his way. And that Jesus still has some work to do to enliven there and our imaginations to open there and our eyes and ears and hearts to the strange work of the Messiah for and with and through us. So to help us with this in this Lenten season, we're going to study Jesus' parables from Matthew's Gospel. And I think parables are really good for this sort of work because parables frustrate and obscure as much as they help to clarify for us. That, like, parables are not great sermon illustrations. Uh, or maybe they're really good sermon illustrations. Because they, they don't really connect what we don't know to what we do know. Like, even as Jesus picks up ordinary objects or points to ordinary things. Like, Jesus tells parables about sheep and shepherds because they knew sheep and shepherds. And, and, and all of these common objects, but... There's not like a one-to-one correlation here, and it, it doesn't make exact sense because instead he, he, he decides to use these ordinary things to recast the whole logic of the world, like the whole logic of everything. So the, 
the, these parables are hard to preach on because it, they they re- they really make lousy rules for what one of my friends calls churchianity. Like it's hard to boil them down and, and get a principle or a rule of life to, to, to walk with. But they're really good at creating new thought worlds that we can see Jesus and expand our imaginations for what God's arrived and active and coming kingdom looks like. So that's what we're going to do together, uh, even as we walk in this path to and through the cross together during this Lenten season. So I think that's what's happening with Peter. He's having his imagination opened up, and I think that's what's happening to us or, or what kind of work that we should be about. So following Peter's proclamation, the first time one of his disciples has had such an epiphany, has said the words, Jesus and Christ, next to each other, Jesus tells them, that they will see the kingdom of God in their lifetimes. He says, many of you will not die before you see the kingdom of God. What an amazing thing. And I think even more amazing considering Luke was written sometime later in the first century after some of these guys have probably already died, right? And so, that, like, there's no, there's no fooling here. Like, uh, this, is, this is a real expectation and a, and a really bold promise. And so Jesus says this to them. He says, you will see the kingdom of God in your lifetimes. And then poof, Jesus is transfigured and the kingdom is really evident right in front of them, right? Nah, kind of, not, not really. Um, eight days later, Peter, James, and John go up with Jesus on a mountaintop. Traditionally, this is a place called Mount Tabor. And they're going there to pray to kind of get away. This is their, their retreat, uh, a place that they can be with God. And Peter, James, and John are struggling to stay awake because none of us has ever struggled to stay awake in prayer or in a sermon. Can I get an amen from you guys? Good gracious. <laughs> right? So... They're just trying to stay awake and do, like, normal, obedient task in connecting with the Father in prayer, with Jesus. And then this crazy, beautiful change happens. The Jesus they've known and the Jesus they've grown accustomed to being around, hearing wisdom and truth and seeing acts of power and healing, Jesus starts to glow. (laughs) Jesus starts to glow. It says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes flashed white like lightning. And that's not the wildest or most enigmatic thing that happens. All of the sudden, it seems as if Jesus is in the company of Moses and Elijah. They're discussing discussing plans for when Jesus is Departure might be fulfilled in Jerusalem. And note that word, Jesus' departure, is Jesus' exodus. So it seems like if you're going to be talking shop about leading an exodus, Moses is your guy, right? He knew a little bit of something about liberating God's people from slavery, and that is what Jesus was to be about. All of this is so surreal. Or maybe... 
maybe not surreal. I don't know if surreal's like the right word. Maybe it's it's like hyper real. Maybe it's too real. Maybe it's overflowingly real what is happening. The past and all of God's history is flooding into the present in like fulfilling, overflowing, even as the future is being shown in like a double exposure. That's why I think Jesus is, is glowing and, and his clothes are dazzling white. Like this is pretty remarkable language considering like zero technology as we know it that these people know and they're describing this like hyper sensational scene. It seems as if the whole world shown on that mountaintop at that moment is like unstable in a good way. Like it's vibrating, it's charged with God's grandeur, God's glory. This is what any good mountaintop kind of encounter with God is. It's, it's heavy, it's dense. Maybe that's why the Hebrew word for holy is, is this word kavod, and it, it's a weight word. It's heavy, it's too thick. It feels great, and it feels fearful for them to be at the nexus of past and present and future. But it doesn't feel like it can hold. It's just unstable. Remember this from last week, um, this ever-expanding terrain of the Psalms, how it makes our past and our present and our future expanded bandwidth to, to respond to God. And it holds all of this together in a song form, it puts handles on our memory, and, and, to, and this is what I think it feels like to be there in like a concentrated way, like catching quicksilver. Like a little bit of stardust in a bottle is what they're, they're dealing with here. Then Peter, again, Peter, always the spokesperson, perhaps feeling like he was riding a little bit of a wave after that Christ confession that he nailed. Uh, Peter, like, he uncorks a really winning statement here. Maybe he's just filling the air. Do you ever feel that, like when it's too quiet and you just have to say something because it's killing you, the silence? So Peter uncorks this thing, and it's sort of sweet in its obviousness. He says, Master, it's good for us to be here. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's so good. I love that so much. But seriously, this is an expression for what it feels like to glimpse glory. Like It is good for us to be here. This chance, for all Peter knows, to see something that's never happened and can't happen again, this is like a glitch in the time-space continuum. This is a window into, the, into eternity. And so Peter says, it's really good to be here. This is great. This is great. So then Peter does what I think about any of us would try to do. He tries to organize... James and John, to prolong this because it's so great. He, he, he tries to make it last by trying to make a dwelling for Isaiah and Moses and Jesus. Tabernacles or shrines. And then we're told that Peter didn't know what he was saying. <laughs> I love that note. Luke is brutal, <laughs> right? While, like... This was doubtlessly an impulse of love and humility for Peter. 
I think it was a hospitality too small. Like, Peter's impulse at its best, and remember, Peter's kind of like a, a, a fill-in or a placeholder for the church. Remember, Peter would be the rock upon which the church would be built. And so Peter's, like, uh, good, good attributes are kind of our good attributes, and Peter's knuckleheadedness is kind of our knuckleheadedness, right? And so Peter's impulse at its best is to make room for something or someone who is uncontrollable. That's a little bit of what we're supposed to do. That's also when we go wrong, our containers are often too small for a God who is uncontainable. And I think a little bit also about this literary criticism principle that's really helpful here. Uh, don't tune out. It's, it's really interesting. It, it's great. Um, it's this thing called the heresy of paraphrase. Has anyone ever heard of that? It means something like you should never explain a poem or a joke, right? Um, that, that the meaning of a poem is the poem, right? If, if the author wanted to do more, he or she would have done something differently, right? Don't try to paraphrase a joke uh, or uh, paraphrase a poem. And if you try to explain a joke, that means something went really wrong, either with the joke or the comedian or the audience. Don't explain the joke, right? It's not nearly as funny when you pop the hood. This is why musicians often hate when people, usually non-musicians, write about music. Elvis Costello once apparently said, like, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Like, it's just ridiculous to try to do that. Some things resist being reduced. You can't reduce these things. They mean what they are. The medium is the message. To insist otherwise is, is to close down rather than to open up our experience. To be like watching the jumbotron while you're sitting on the 50-yard line of a game. Yeah, so guilty of that, right? Or this is what screens do to us. Or this is like being preoccupied to post an Instagram from like the, the crest of the Grand Canyon. Right, like you're looking at your phone and doing this small closed down experience when this vast opening experience is in front of you. To truly be present means to be on God's time and God's space. And this opens us up rather than closes us down. And I think this is a little bit of what, what Peter's imagination betrays. Let's build them houses, let's keep them here. This is awesome, let's keep it going. They are witnessing the coming kingdom in the now. Jesus' communion with and fulfilling of the law and the prophets. Moses the law, Elijah the prophets. And then rather than soaking it all in and trying to bask in some of this reflected glory, they try to make tents so that it can last longer. And in so doing, they're greatly mistaken as to what the kingdom is like. The kingdom can't stay here. The kingdom's here, but it can't stay here. It's got to go. It's got to go through Jerusalem, and it's got to go through the cross, and it's got to go through the grave, and it's got to go to the ends of the earth. This is the kingdom that they're going to see in their lifetimes. This is the kingdom that we see in our lifetimes. This glory needs to shine, not inside of some tent on some mountain, not just in one place, 
But in the words of Gerard Manley Hopkins, Christ plays in 10,000 places. He says, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. It means Christ is, is all over the place in every face you encounter, in every place you least expect. The end of a transfiguration poem, I'm really relying on these poems because the poems help us when we don't have strong enough words because they, they have an excess of meaning. And, and I think the end of this transfiguration poem by Jan Richardson kind of captures the movement happening here. She writes, but this blessing is built for leaving. This blessing is made for coming down the mountain. This blessing wants to be in motion to travel with you as you return to level ground. So Peter was still speaking when a cloud overshadowed them. As they entered the cloud, they were overcome with awe, and then a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Even as the voice spoke, Jesus was found alone. They were speechless and at the time told no one what they'd seen. So next, we find Peter and company overwhelmed, entering a cloud, overcome with awe. It's important to realize, for as wild as their mountaintop experience had just been, the things that are happening here are also set in just as startling of a context overshadowed in Luke's gospel is exactly what the power of the Most High had done to Mary, Jesus' mother. The, the power of the Most High has overshadowed me. And she matched God's yes with her yes and was enlisted to bear in her body the salvation of the world. The, these disciples on this mountain are overshadowed. Or this booming phrase, or maybe it was a gentle whisper, says, this is my son, the chosen one. These are the words lovingly spoke over Jesus at the Jordan baptism with John. They commissioned Jesus to get about that spirit-anointed good news proclaiming, release to the captives, sight to the blind, jubilee year kind of mission from Luke 4. And then... So that's all kind of in the background and subtext. And then in this amazingly cinematic cutaway, it goes quiet and it cuts to Jesus alone, speechless, soon to set his face towards Jerusalem. What is happening here is incredibly clarifying for them. All of this like panorama is happening and then cut to Jesus. Amidst all the dazzling drama of the mountain, they are now left with Jesus and Jesus alone. No words, no summaries, no explanations, just Jesus. And this is in no way some sort of like narrowing. It's, it's simplifying, but it's not narrowing. This is still the kingdom of God standing in front of them. This is an invitation into that kingdom work. 
This is like an, an abolition of the zero-sum closed world and an invitation into this world too big that they've just witnessed with Jesus. Later on, Peter actually does get some words for what's going on here. And they're given to us in, in this uh, letter, First uh, Peter 1, 16 through 18. He says, we didn't repeat crafty myths when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Quite the contrary, we witnessed his majesty with our own eyes. We received honor and glory from God the Father when a voice came to him from the magnificent glory saying, this is my dearly loved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. It's this power and this participation that propels them then down the mountain and right into a healing. The, the extra verses that I read about the kid with epilepsy that was thrown on the ground and Jesus heals him. This is what follows their mountaintop experience. They, they go from mountain to valley like that. And it's still evidence in God's power and their participation in it. This, this kind of like intersection and interaction like ultimately defines then that for the world that the king, the, this kingdom that they're going to see, the king bears a cross and the kingdom is cross-shaped. It's this power and participation that enlists them in all sorts of similar forms of like transfigurations, metamorphoses in our world, in our neighborhood. I love that Matthew and Mark's gospel, when they tell the transfiguration story, when Jesus' face and clothes are transformed, they use a word that we, we're probably kind of familiar with. They use the word metamorphosis. Uh, Luke's word's a little different, but the, these two other gospels, they use the word, and it's really rare, and they use it, and it's metamorphosis. It's a transformational word for, for Jesus' transfiguration. My friend Katie Crow um, hinted at this because she wrote a whole uh, doctoral dissertation on the other time that this word, besides Matthew and Mark, shows up, this metamorphosis word. When we know about metamorphosis, it's like a butterfly uh, coming out of a cocoon, right? This, this constitutional change, right? Uh, the only other place it shows up is in Romans 12, too. Um, when Paul is entreating us in light of all these things that God has done, giving us Jesus, pouring out the Spirit, bringing us into relationship, the aftermath of who Jesus is and what he's already done and initiated, that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're to be metamorphosized by the renewing of our minds. Isn't that crazy? Like, we're brought into this, the, like the same sort of wild scene that we've never seen and, and wouldn't ever expect to see Jesus being met with this glory that is revelatory on this mountain and, and we're to do something kind of like that as we participate in it. The message says, uh, the message version of this, uh, Romans 12, 2 is, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. From the inside out. Elsewhere, 
Paul kind of runs up on this theme when in 2 Corinthians he says, so if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. We, a lot of us have read that as if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation, but it's bigger than that. Anyone is in Christ, colon, new creation is there. The old has passed away. See, everything has become new. A pastor in South Bronx, Heidi Newmark, writes really beautiful about her experience with this sort of transfiguration. She says, their neighborhood, pretty rough part of South Bronx, um, their neighborhood serves to transfigure the church, to metamorphosize the church. And I think this is really true. Even as we work as agents of redemption, of restoration, of reconciliation, we're also witnesses. Like, we're recipients of this gift of metamorphosis that's already begun. We catch up to the Spirit's good work. Because this Jesus reality, everything around us is in play. Like, places and people, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, like, you've never met a mere mortal person. Everyone is, is charged with God's grandeur, and that should excite us more than it should intimidate us. This should fill us with expectation, not anxiety. This should open us up and out to experience Christ playing in 10,000 places through the other people's faces. This should revolutionize and transfigure and transform how you interact with God and your neighbor on a daily basis. It's this conviction that ordinary places are inhabited by God's glory not just mountaintops, but here and now and, and throughout your coming week. It's kind of the grounds for the idea behind our Lenten project that's coming up um, that we can both be host and guest for. See, there's a couple of slides here. So a group, uh, you can keep going. You can keep going. There's a group that helped uh, set up this exhibit. You might recognize this alleyway just around the corner, like you could kind of cut through the back of the shopping center here. And it's called Stations on the Street. And um, it's put on by an artist named Scott Erickson uh, in Portland, Oregon. And it's really beautiful and are, uh, about six or seven of us, um, uh, I didn't really do much, um, we pasted these in this alleyway and we're partnering with El Futuro, which is a, um, uh, mental health agency uh, specifically geared towards the Latino community. Um, they're letting us use their wall. And uh, the conviction was that there is beauty in forgotten places, sure. But also, like, the cross belongs out in the world. Like, Jesus was crucified outside of the city gates. So these... these uh, these places and these faces are places and faces of, of uh, engaging with God's life in the world. So we, we're working with this project. We uh, translated the stations so they're all bilingual, and we're hoping for, like, maximum accessibility. We're hoping to start this on Ash Wednesday, and we want to see you there from 7 to 9.30 
or sometime in between. We want you to invite neighbors and host. Uh, each Wednesday throughout Lent, our midweek morning prayer that's normally on the steps at 7.30 is going to be over in the alleyway. There's going to be um, some devotional material to help you walk these stations. And, and we really, uh, and we're going to start that with Ash Wednesday. And I think Ash Wednesday is an amazing sort of sacrament and object lesson for what this sort of transfiguration looks like because um, you're like brutally confronting your own mortality. That's the big part of Ash Wednesday. So you have ashes smeared right between your eyes and I or someone else will say to you like up in your face, you are dust and you will be dust and there's like nothing more humiliating than that, right? Like we think we're so awesome but we're dust. But that, that plays into this idea of transfiguration and this trust and this witnessing what God has done and is doing because just as the dust of Jesus' very human body glowed with glory, so do and so will ours. Not because our dust is amazing, <laughs> but because God makes beautiful things out of dust and breathes life by God's spirit into dust. And that's what we're hoping for. That's what we're participating in. I want to close, and we really hope that you'll be a part of it and that you'll invite people to it. It's, it's really beautiful and really thoughtful. Um, we'll, we'll be putting some like social media resources up to make it easier to share. I want to close with this poem by Malcolm Geith, and I'm just going to read it without commentary so I don't fall prey to my own warning, um, and you'll call me a heretic for paraphrase. Um, but this is a poem called Ordinary Saints, and, and Malcolm Geith uh, wrote this poem to accompany some amazing portraits by Bruce Herman of uh, normal people, many people that are still alive, uh, some of whom um, there's a tradition that you, it, that, um, Saints who have died get round halos, but living saints get square halos. And uh, he didn't really represent them with square halos, but that's kind of the idea of this project, is living people, ordinary saints. Here's his poem. The ordinary saints, the ones we know, our two familiar family and friends, when shall we see them? Who can truly show, while still rough-hewn, the God who shapes our ends? Who will reveal the presence, a glimpse of gold that is and always was our common ground? Stretch out a finger, feel along the fold to find the flaw, to touch and search the wound from which the light we never noticed fell into our lives. Remember how we turn to look at them and they look back? That full-eyed love unselved us and we turned around, unready for the wrench and reach of grace but one day we will see them face to face. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for these words and for the ordinary saints around us in the, in the ordinary places um, that we frequent, our homes, our neighborhoods, our places where we work or study. Um, charge us with expectation for transfiguration transformation, for metamorphosis, for your glory to glow bright and surprise us and to make us never look at them the same. Let us leave 
out of here expecting this, um, expecting that we'll experience some of these things that Jesus experienced and made possible because um, we are following Jesus. Lord, bless this uh, Lenten season ahead of us. Prepare us. Uh, Lord, be gentle as you chasten us and, and correct us. Um, Lord, we're, we're just ashes and dust, and uh, we're counting on you to breathe new life into us. Um, help us walk with you, uh, even as it leads to the cross and through the cross. Uh, Lord, thanks for being with us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.